Welcome back to the Slavic Connection. This is Samantha, and today I'm talking with Dr. Dimitar Bechev, who is the director of the European Policy Institute based in Sofia, Bulgaria. He has held research fellowships at Harvard, Oxford, and the London School of Economics, and he currently heads the Sofia office of the European Council on Foreign Relations. His book, Rival Power, Russia and Southeast Europe, came out from Yale University Press in 2017. And today we had the opportunity to talk about Russia's power in Southeastern Europe, its relationship with Turkey, and more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. To start off, Dr. Bechev, could you briefly characterize the presence of Russia in Southeast Europe today or historically? Well, Russia is a regional player in Southeast Europe, and despite headlines that it's coming back to the region, one of the claims I'm making in the book is that it's been involved in one shape or form throughout the post-communist period, starting from the 1990s, maybe with the exception of a very brief stretch in the early 2000s. And its presence has taken, presence has taken different shapes and forms, uh, from involvement in peacekeeping and conflict management during the use of wars through the large-scale uh, infrastructure projects on energy, uh, oil and gas, but natural gas, especially South Stream, all the way to the standoff with the West around the annexation of Crimea and the years after when Russia tried to push back against NATO expansion and to some degree EU expansion uh, in the region. But uh, the bottom line is that Moscow has always been part of the, the regional landscape and has cultivated relations with all kinds of actors across Southeast Europe, which I make a point in the book for saying that it's not just the Western Balkans, but also next door countries, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, and I also bring in Turkey uh, into the discussion. So in the 21st century, as Russia's becoming independent and really strengthening its economic and military sway, let's say in the region, what does it benefit by being involved in these various relationships in Southeast Europe? Well, one of the long-standing Russian demands or security interests, if you will, is to gain a recognition as a top-ranking international power and also regional player and by region here I mean Europe as a whole not just uh, the Balkans certainly recovering its hegemonic position in the former Soviet space is, is, is the first necessary step but also being able to assert its interests in regions further afield and it helps it build this profile and having this position on a par with other European countries, major players like France, the UK, and Germany, the big three first and foremost, and certainly the US as a as external power involved in European affairs. So I think this is the overarching theme. The Balkans is just part of Moscow's leverage. And as was the case in the Yeltsin era uh, many years ago now, and certainly uh, also in the, the various stages of Putin's tenure in power in the Kremlin. Uh, secondly, it has kind of more recent development to do with the standoff, and the, the general deterioration of relations between Russia and the West post-Crimea. 
uh, Russia has identified the region as one of the weak spots on the periphery of the Western Alliance, uh, where it can make gains at very low cost, at minimal risk, make life difficult for the West, and by the West, I mean both the EU and the US, and try to gain strategic leverage to apply in the overall relationship. So this is, in very broad strokes, Russia's strategic thinking about this corner of Europe. Do you think that Russia sees itself as ever being able to fully culturally or economically win the region of Southeast Europe, though, even though it seems like European Union membership is the end goal for most of these states, even if they don't benefit from it as much as they thought they would? That's that's a great question. And this is very much dependent on how we define winning. If we adopt a definition uh, drawing on the Cold War precedent where the Soviet Union, Russia's predecessor, had clan states, was stationing troops at some point, but also provided economic support and also guaranteed the stability of the regimes. I come from Bulgaria and, and very much that was the paradigmatic clan state of the Soviets all the way until the late 80s. If that's the benchmark, I don't think Russia is interested. It is, despite the continuity with the Soviets, a different player with different set of capabilities. So we're not getting there and, and Russia is not able and nor willing to rival the European Union at that level. If you look at trade flows, investment, uh, human connectivity, if you will, it's, it's clear that Russia doesn't have such kind of resources to bring to bear. Yet if Russia's purpose is to maintain foothold in the region, be it politically, but also instead the sector of the economy, which that can be used to make profit, whether that's economic profit or geopolitical mileage. Clearly, there's a lot to be done. And we have to understand that it's all not only about Russia. And this is where my book probably differs from other accounts produced by policy thinkers, but also academics to some degree. The reason Russia is influential is also because of demand from the region, that there are so many openings and, and local actors and the domestic arena, but also regionally, who are interested in partnering with Russians for whatever reason, whether to generate rents from various economic projects to boost their political standing in domestic contests or just to be able to compete against their neighboring countries and so on and so forth. So the way to properly gauge Russia's role and capabilities is to take into account preferences and demands and and type of linkages existing at the local level between local actors and and, and the Russians. In that way, we have to keep in mind the bottom-up aspects, not just what is being decided in in Moscow or Brussels or Washington for that matter. Yeah, and often when we see these connections between maybe most obviously it'd be Serbia and Russia, I think the Western media often characterizes these as being a result of civilizational similarities, a history of orthodoxy in the region. How accurate do you think this ideology basically of civilizational similarity is and how far does it go actually on a local level? I don't want to dispute that because certainly there's something to it. It's just that there is no automaticity. The the fact that Serbs or Greeks or Bulgarians, Montenegrins share, or the majority of them, because these are complex societies, right? They're multi-ethnic. They share this religious identity uh, with Russia. doesn't necessarily translate into an alliance. 
I mean, one lesson from history of the Balkans, if you ignore Russia for, for a minute, is that those uh, confessional connections counted for very little historically. In modern history, at the end of the day, you had nation states vying for power and for territory, irrespective of their cultural similarity. But what I want to argue and what I do argue in the book is that this historical baggage and cultural baggage provides material for political players to articulate their agenda in the present and to give meaning, to wrap up their political relations with the Russians in a particular way. And that applies also to Russia because it gives certain instruments to approach the region. But having said that, I mean, history is really complex. It depends which bits of history you put in the spotlight and which you tend to ignore. And Serbia would be a great example, right? The Serbia-Russian connection thrived in the 1990s under Milosevic, but then again, going back to the 80s when Yugoslavia was still around, it was not a Soviet client state. Milosevic, early in his career, was a technocrat. He spent time in, in, in the West, and Tituism was so about multi-vector, and clearly influences uh, from Western Europe and the US were much more powerful in Yugoslavian life, especially in, in the late, later decades. We see some reflexes of that right now with Serbia, going back to your question about the current regime and President Vucic. I mean, the, the, the rapprochement we're seeing now with the Trump administration over Kosovo, but also between Serbia and China in the context of COVID-19 is clear indication that this juggling of ge geopolitical options that was very much the norm in the Yugoslav era is still influential in shaping foreign policy, the foreign policy outlook of, of Serbian elites. And I'd say it's not much different elsewhere as well. So, yeah, that's a roundabout way to respond to the question of cultural identity. History really matters but it matters in a particular way and we shouldn't forget that it's also the players themselves which uh, inject particular meaning and historical legacies to specific political use. And particularly President Vucic of Serbia, as an example, maybe has really done this kind of maneuvering, as you mentioned with China and COVID, China and Russia giving aid for Serbia at a time when Serbia said that basically the West couldn't even help them when they couldn't help themselves. And then a few weeks or a few months later, arriving in Washington for economic normalization with Kosovo. Do you think that the economic normalization with Kosovo and Serbia has any lasting effects? Or if there was one of them that walked out of that meeting really with a win in their pocket? Yeah, and just to a footnote to what you had to say, he, Butic, uh, walked back his remarks on the European Union because, remember, 15th of March, when he made this harsh statement praising China and lambasting the European Union, it was hypocrisy, double standards. Well, when European aid materialized and it became crystal clear that over the long haul, it's Brussels paying for economic recovery in the, in the region and, and there'll be solidarity. It's not a fairy tale. He changed his tune. But yeah, I mean, I think there are gains to be made uh, from economic normalization and without being fully dismissive of the court sign in the White House, some of that negotiated in the run-up to the court's opening 
and transport connections between Belgrade and Pristina might have some positive impact on the ground. But let's be honest, there's a huge gap, huge discrepancy between how uh, the Trump administration presented the achievement and the substance behind it. It's not that there is a major step forward. The only palpable gain in the political sense is for Kosovo, I think, having obtained Israel's recognition which is not unimportant. What is in for Serbia, we'll find out. But suffice to say, there are lots of unknowns, and including about U.S. commitment uh, to the region, because, again, let's be honest, since the early 2000s, since George W. Bush, first administration, the Balkans is not on the radar. It's not a top priority as it was in the 1990s. And U.S. foreign policy is looking elsewhere. How big of a client is Southeast Europe, including Turkey, for Russian hydrocarbon? If they started turning a little bit more towards alternative sources, would that be a hit for Russian involvement in the region? Well, Turkey is important in its own right as a, as a customer for Russian gas, not so much for oil. Southeast Europe, the rest of the Balkans, in other words, less so. Its importance is more about geography as, as a potential transit route and has been spelled out since the mid-2000s when Russia and Ukraine started falling off with regard to gas transit. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. If you look at uh, consumption patterns and imports of Turkey, and that's a huge market. A small fact there, since 2005-2006, Turkey went on to become Russia's second most important market after Germany when it comes to gas, natural gas. But Turkey has been diversifying sources. First of all, being able to tap into Caspian gas, but even more importantly, for prices on global markets opened many opportunities for importing liquefied natural gas from all kinds of places starting from Qatar, Nigeria, Algeria as well. So Turkey has managed to wean itself away from Russia to some degree. But we have to find out how it plays um, because there are a series of commercial negotiations in the years to come where uh, the Turkish state-owned uh, gas monopoly, Potash, uh, will be renegotiating its commercial relationship with, with Gazprom. And there are a lot of small print issues which also are reflective of the balance of power. So the gas trade is, is a mix between the market, but also state-to-state -state relations. And have relations between Russia and Turkey and Erdogan and Putin improved recently? Or where do you see them going in the next few years? That's a very topical question because I, I guess the general takeaway here is that it's a complex relationship between Moscow and Ankara. It combines cooperation with rivalry and it's been solved since the 1990s. To make a long story short, it is complicated uh, between those two and it will remain so. Are there any domestic differences or similarities between domestic policy and electoralism in Turkey and Russia right now that could change that relationship going forward? Or do you think it really does depend upon the administrations that are currently in power in Russia and Turkey? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. A lot of people have linked so the current level of rapprochement between the two with Turkey abandoning democracy and turning into a hybrid autocratic competitive regime. I don't see this direct linkage that much. 
we've seen Turkey and Russia cooperating in different times. Even when Turkey had a more open democratic system, it pursued more or less the same set of policies vis-a-vis Moscow, uh, trying to maximize the benefits of economic cooperation, work on issues of common interests politically, but at the same time not be uh, rosy-eyed about areas where their interests are, are adults. And right now, actually, if you look at the two regimes, if you put them side by side, I still think they're different uh, in the sense that Turkey has a longer democratic tradition, competitive elections, freer media, civil society, uh, and so on and so forth. Erdogan managed to dismantle much of that, but it's not all lost. I mean, we've seen the opposition, Turkey making important gains at the local elections, and this scenario that would be unthinkable in Russia, where the bar is set much lower. If there's a new set of characters, either in Ankara or Moscow, and that's a big if because I don't think that's an immediate prospect. I think much of what we observe now will, will be similar, will be resilient, because it's driven by geopolitical realities and to some degree economic interdependence. If you look from the Turkey angle, maybe another political elite will be a tad more cautious about engaging the Russians and confronting uh, the West. But the fundamentals won't be changed and, and Turkey will assert its independent power, equidistant from the West and Russia. And equally, Russia will be trying to maximize all the frictions between Turkey and the West in order to split the alliance and get a geopolitical mileage out of it. So these are the long-term trends which go beyond the personalities of Putin and Erdogan, but they are also impersonal forces at work. Yeah, and maybe if we look a little bit past Turkey towards Montenegro. So at the end of August, bleeding into September, we had parliamentary elections in Montenegro. And for the first time, we saw longtime President Milo Djukanovic's party lose a lot of ground politically. And they lost a lot of ground to a coalition that was, you know, has variously been called pro-Serbian, pro-Serbian Orthodox, pro-Russia. Do you think that that domestic turn signals anything for relationships with Russia and the Balkans, especially for a country like Montenegro? That, that's a great question. And that's an interesting test case. I mean, first of all, the coalition is complex. You're absolutely right that the dominant part of it is what could be described as Serbian nationalist, pro-Serbian Orthodox, pro-Belgrade and, and pro-Russian. But ultimately, the kingmaker was a smaller coalition, which is clearly pro-Western. What I expect in Montenegro is that the fundamentals of Montenegro's foreign policy will remain the same. It's clear that they won't pull out from NATO. Uh, there won't be any stop to the EU accession talks. And Montenegro won't de-recognize Kosovo. This is somebody who started as an ally of Russia and, and business partner of many prominent figures in the Moscow elite, and then ended up is self-appointed guardian of, of the West, um, who thought that uh, Russia was, was after him. Not without reason, I'm sad, because uh, it's clear that uh, Russian proxies and various networks were up to no good in Montenegro, particularly around the elections in 2016. But for any serious Balkan watcher, it was clear that the fulcrum of politics in Montenegro and, and the real issues were closer to home and had to do with state capture, corruption, and the usual repertoire. First of all, uh, change of guard is, is healthy. 
And in foreign policy, there'll be more continuity, maybe some softer rhetoric vis-a-vis Russia, reminiscent of what you have in other countries, not just in former Yugoslavia, if you look further afield. I think Greece might be a good example, a long-lasting, long-standing member of NATO and the EU, which has always tried to be cooperative with the Russians, saying that Russia is a partner and not, not a menace. This is the type of posture I expect from the new Montenegrin government as well, to say that there's nothing wrong about being pro-Western and at the same time being open to doing business with, with Moscow. Now, as local elites, as you said, in Greece and in Montenegro, but also also in Turkey and other kind of Balkan southeastern states like Bulgaria and Romania, the posturing for and against um, or kind of ambiguously towards Russia, what effect does it have on a very local level for people who go to vote, people working everyday jobs? Does it matter to them or is it just kind of an electoral position for them to take? I don't think it really matters in terms of uh, galvanizing the vote. Other factors are probably much more salient. Um, I mean, for instance, uh, if you promise uh, public sector employment uh, to your constituents or various other giveaways and perks, uh, and also use your dominant position uh, in redistributing goods, that probably gets you much more in terms of electoral strength than uh, say that you're pro-Western or anti or pro-Russian. So I think ultimately, again, issues, bread and butter issues closer to home. And it's only natural. It's the same pretty much uh, in any uh, democratic or semi-democratic system, including the U.S. Issues that matter to voters are those that affect them directly and are less abstract as those geopolitical concerns. But it doesn't mean that they're uh, immaterial because sometimes Russia is making alliances with various forces, subsidizing them and keeping the balance in their favor, helping them to amplify their political support. Sometimes it's a winning strategy. In many occasions, it isn't. One interesting moment, again, going to Serbia was in 2016, in the run-up to the then parliamentary elections. There was a mobilization by various nationalist and far-right forces demanding a referendum on NATO. Vucic was really against it because he said, there's a resolution on neutrality by the parliament. I don't want to put NATO uh, on the ballot. This attempt by Russia to chip away support from Vucic and put him under pressure and and have more leverage over him, I, I don't think it really worked because he's much more in control controlling the media, but also uh, the various bits of the economy. This gives you so much more power. Something similar happened now, actually, you could argue, looking from the lens of domestic politics, that Russia has lost some of its foothold. Its main ally in Serbian politics, the Serbian Socialist Party, if it's a Dacic, lost ground in the latest parliamentary elections, which delivered the supermajority to Vucic's SNS, which probably gives uh, the Serbian president a much more roof maneuver. And therefore, we, we see all those openings to Washington, and not so much to China, but certainly to the, to the West. So yeah, it, it is complicated. But again, I, I don't see 
Russia being so consequential when it comes to electoral politics and domestic affairs. Yeah, I guess maybe as a closing question, do you see any pressure points or kind of moments of stability or instability in the region that you think Russia could take advantage of or even just as a way to bolster local economies? Russia is not going away. It is part of local economies. If you look at Bulgaria, uh, the biggest, one of the largest and in many years largest, depending on reported taxes or other metrics, largest refinery in post-communist Southeast Europe. You look at Montenegro with various pro-Russian forces, even in Macedonia, North Macedonia, where nationalists, the base of the main opposition party, is Russia as a, as a foreign partner. The Russian media operations, COVID-19 provided a great opportunity to put all kinds of conspiracy theories that originate from the West, but then they're recycled through various Russian platforms and, and proxies and channeled back into the recipient countries. So there are many openings, many avenues to exert pressure without actually taking risks or without putting forward serious resources, certainly without projecting hard power as well. Secondly, Kosovo remains unresolved and there is no prospect for an endgame, despite the rhetoric from the White House. Bosnia is as dysfunctional as it has always been. And in both cases, Russia has institutional role, much more in Bosnia, where it is part of the Peace Implementation Council and also the steering group, and has uh, in Murat Dodik a very close ally much more so than its relationship with Vucic in, in Belgrade. So Russia is, is constant in Bosnia. Less so in Kosovo, of course, but let's not forget that Russia sits on the UN Security Council, so one way or another it will end into its court. So there's uh, also formal means to be influential, in addition to presence in the economy and, and also the various alliances with anti-Western and nationalist groups in the region. So even if you could say the West has been winning Montenegro joining NATO, then North Macedonia joining NATO, despite Russia's effort to, to hinder uh, the strife, I don't think Russia is going to evaporate and go away. It will always be there in, in one shape. Very much how it uses its leverage depends on the phase in its relations with, with the West, which ebbs and flows. If there is a reset, and that's a big F granted, Russia can turn down the Western rhetoric and efforts. And equally, if there is a deterioration, it will have the pressure using the usual channels. But we'll have these conversations in the years to come. I'm, I'm pretty sure about it. Yeah, thank you so much for this conversation and drawing attention to how much local agency matters and how it's not very a clear conversation all the time when talking about what Russia wants and where. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's, it was great. It's good to go back to my book <laughs> and thinking about how it fits into what's going on. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, we hope that you'll check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Apple Podcasts. We will see you next time on the Slavic Connection for more fantastic conversations with experts from our region. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic
Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.